It's Monday, the 19th of February, and welcome to Career 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang Wook. Trainee doctors in Korea have been handing in their resignations in protest of the government's plan to increase the medical school admissions quota. We'll have more in news briefing shortly. As tensions on the Korean Peninsula escalate, we speak to a reporter who recently visited one of the islands near the inter-Korean maritime border to see how the residents feel about the situation. And then coming up for Monday's Sports Roundup, we look back at Klinsman's tenure with the Korean national football team and Korea's recent success in the pool and on the ice. We have all that and more on today's Korea 24. Trainee doctors at the so-called Big Five General Hospitals in Seoul and others across the nation have been handing in their resignations en masse today. And despite threats of legal action by the government, they are set to walk off the job on Tuesday. This comes in response to the government's planned hike of the medical school admissions quota. For more on this story and other headlines from today, I'm joined in the studio by KBS World Radio News Editor Daniel Chair. Daniel, hello. Hello there, Jango. Yes, you can cut attention in Korea currently with a knife, or should we perhaps say with a surgical knife, as the government remains adamant on its stance to expand the med school admissions quota, while those in the medical community are taking drastic measures in protest. So what's the latest? So trainee doctors in pediatrics and several other departments at Severance Hospital decided to immediately leave after tendering their resignations on Monday. Severance Hospital has half the scheduled number of surgeries this week to adjust to this latest move. Other big five, including Samsung Medical Center, St. Mary Hospital, and also begun notifying patients of surgery schedule adjustments. Medical students are also joining the protest. The Korean Medical Student Association announced students at 40 medical schools plan to take collective leave of absence starting Tuesday. The Education Ministry will convene an emergency meeting with university presidents at those 40 schools. The ministry said 715 trainee doctors at 23 hospitals have submitted resignation letters as of 6 p.m. Friday, non accepted thus far. The government has ordered trainee doctors at 221 hospitals nationwide to maintain their posts while cooperating with fire authorities to continue providing emergency medical services. The military will open public access to emergency rooms, including the Armed Forces Capital Hospital, to help in the absence of doctors at civilian hospitals. Yes, and to be prepared against worst-case scenarios, Prime Minister Han Dok-su said the government will activate the emergency operation system of public medical institutions and fully allow the use of telemedicine services in response to the collective action. That's right. He made the remarks at a meeting of related ministers to discuss the response to doctors' collective action, stressing the need to minimize inconveniences to the public. The government will operate ERs of 409 state-designated medical institutions around the clock, prioritize surgical procedures for emergency and critically ill patients, establish a system rather to provide services for essential medicine, and will prepare to mobilize public health doctors and military doctors if the situation worsens. Yes, this is a very tense situation, which we will continue to follow closely this week. Let's turn to politics next. With the general elections approaching, the internal discord between the co-chairs of a new political force, the new reform party, Lee Jun-suk and Lee Nak-yeon, is deepening. There's a lot of noise and tension in the two main rival parties as well. Can you fill us in on what's been going on? 
So this is the latest. The new Reform Party experiencing a power struggle situation. On Monday, it decided to delegate to co-chair Lee Jun-suk authority over the party's campaigns and policies. Strong opposition from co-chair Lee na and council member Kim Jong-min, who walked out of the Supreme Council meeting in protest. Some speculate the NRP, a merger of four new parties on February 9th, could dissolve if this situation continues. The ruling People Power Party is considering having former Foreign Minister Park Jin and former Presidential Secretary for Personnel Affairs Yi Won Mo run in districts other than the Gangnam Bi district. On rumors that it will replace lawmakers in the Daegu and North Gyeongsang province, it said there will be a reshuffle but didn't comment on the details. The main opposition Democratic Party is focusing on containing a controversy sparked by a media report that former Presidential Chief of Staff Im jong Suk and Hong Yong-pyo, both supporters of former President Moon Jae-in, are likely to be excluded from party nomination. Meanwhile, the National Assembly's Deputy Speaker, Kim Young-ju, announced on Monday that she's leaving the main opposition Democratic Party. What can you tell us? Well, in a news conference, Kim said she was notified from the party that she ranked within the bottom 20% in terms of parliamentary activities. Kim said that as a lawmaker representing Yongdungpo district, she felt humiliated. The four-term legislator said that during the past four years, she has been picked as an outstanding lawmaker by civic groups and the media for her parliamentary activities. She then urged the DP to disclose the grounds of its evaluation on lawmakers' activities and claimed that the party gave her such a score to exclude her from the party nominations for the general elections. Sticking with election news, deep fake content is on the rise with around 50 days left until the April 10th uh, general elections. This is a very serious issue. The National Election Commission said on Monday that 129 deep fake contents targeting voters violated the public election law and these were spotted. These were found between January 29th and February 16th. Most of the contents are deleted now and measures are being taken for others. AI-based fabricated contents or images are a major potential threat to democracy. This includes a deepfake video of President Yoon ahead of the 2022 local elections disseminated through social media. Last December, the National Assembly passed a revision bill prohibiting campaign use of deepfake tech starting 90 days before an election. That ban took effect on January 29th. In other news, according to a RealMeter survey of 2011 adults nationwide conducted from Tuesday to Friday, 39.5% of respondents gave a positive assessment of the president's handling of state affairs. How does that compare to the previous week? Yes, some welcome positive uh, upgrades or improvements for the president's image. Up 0.3 percentage points from a week earlier, the approval rating has been rising for the past three weeks, increasing from 36.2%. A 57.2% gave a negative assessment, down 0.5 percentage points on a week. The surge in approval follows the administration's consistent push to look after people's livelihoods, such as a presidential order to offer tax support to companies providing corporate childbirth grants and the planned expansion of the med school admissions quota. The survey, commissioned by the Economy Business newspaper, had a confidence level of 95% with a margin of error of plus or minus 2.2 percentage points. And finally, the U.S. Special Envoy for North Korean Human Rights, Julie Turner, highlighted the importance and urgency of helping North Korean people get the information that they want. She also mentioned that free access to information for people in the reclusive regime is very important. This was coming during a congratulatory speech at the first Seoul Freedom Forum hosted by One Korea Network and the Korea-U.S. Alliance Foundation USA on Monday in Seoul. Turner noted that UN report on human rights in North Korea was published 
ten years ago, but the situation in the regime still is the worst in the world. She emphasized the report's recommendations must be implemented and urged all UN members, including China, to do more. The envoy stressed Washington will continue to pressure Pyongyang to respect the rights of its citizens, urges leader Kim Jong-un and the leading figures in that regime to allow citizens freedom of movement, expression, assembly, association and religion. That's all for our news briefing today. Thank you for those updates. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome to the Korea 24 stock and forex update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index climbed 31.50 points or 1.19% on Monday to close at 2,680.26. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also rose 0.87 points or 0.1% to close at 858.47. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 0.21 against the US dollar, closing the day at 1,335.21. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. It's time now for Global News Roundup, where we look beyond Korea to talk about headlines around the world. Joining us for that in the studio, it is our KBS World Radio news editor, Koo Hee-jin. Hee-jin, hello. Hello, Jang. We first head to Russia and the death of Alexei Navalny, a fierce critic of Russian President Vladimir Putin. He passed away late last week in prison under questionable circumstances. His death saw an outpouring of grief from across the world and even inside Russia, which has reportedly resulted in detentions and arrests. So what can you tell us? Well, Russians have been turning out at makeshift memorial, uh, memorials with hundreds reportedly detained in the largest wave of arrests at political events in the country in two years. In contrast to the public, Russian state media has largely ignored his death. The 47-year-old Navalny, a key opposition leader in Russia, died on Friday after becoming unwell on a walk at his prison and falling unconscious, uh, according to the Russian prison service. Navalny was jailed after returning to Russia in 2021 from Germany, where he had been treated after being poisoned with Novichok, a Soviet-era nerve agent. On arrival, Navalny was swiftly arrested on charges that he dismissed as politically motivated. The cause of his death is unclear, and his team have accused the authorities of lying in order to delay the process of returning his body to his family. In Russia, uh, protests need uh, authorization from government officials. Still, crowds attended vigils and rallies at events across the country, and people paid their respects to Navalny, laying down flowers and carrying posters near the Wall of Grief in Moscow, as well as in St. Petersburg and in Siberia. And this was the reason for Russian police to try and disperse the gathering and even carry off and arrest some of the mourners. Unfortunately so. Since Navalny's death, uh, more than 366 people have been detained, according to OVD Info, an independent Russian human rights group that monitors Russian repression. More than 200 detentions occurred in St. Petersburg alone, the organisation said. Navalny's death prompted world leaders and defence chiefs 
attending a security conference in Munich to vehemently blame Putin, who did not even attend the meeting. Navalny's wife, Yulia Navalnaya, also took to the stage at the Munich conference to condemn Putin and to urge those assembled to bring him to justice. And according to Yonhap News, a South Korean foreign ministry official also told reporters in Seoul that Navalny's death warrants a thorough and transparent investigation. And we'll keep an eye on any comments that comes from the Kremlin regarding the affair, but uh, much doubt will remain of the circumstances of Navalny's death. Mm -hmm. Next, we head over to Indonesia. Uh, We talked about the presidential election there last week and mentioned that vote counting is no easy task. Mm -hmm. Well, it's been reported now that more than 20 poll workers died throughout Indonesia's recent parliamentary and presidential elections from a wide range of afflictions, including heart attacks and hypertension. Can you tell us more? Well, according to the Jakarta Post and Xinhua News Agency, 14 provinces reported deaths of election workers as of February 17th. The reports, which cited the Indonesian Health Ministry, say the cause of death included heart disease, accidents, acute respiratory distress syndrome, uh, hypertension, cerebro, uh, cerebrovascular and multiple organ failure. Vote counting in Indonesia with more than 200 million eligible voters uh, and the world's third largest electoral democracy is no easy matter as the archipelagic uh, nation is wider than the US and straddles three time zones and includes some 6,000 inhabited islands. More than 5.74 million poll workers at 823,220 stations are counting votes by hand, according to the General Election Commission. And sadly, deaths of poll workers are not news. Case of poll workers who died in the 2019 general elections reached 894. To prevent deaths, the government has uh, implemented health screening, uh, health screening and requires a, ma- a maximum age limit of 55 for poll workers. Those are quite some shocking facts and figures. Uh, Mm. Who would have thought that you need a fitness test to be a poll worker? Mm -mm. Finally, staying in Southeast Asia, Thailand's convicted former Prime Minister Thaksin Shinawatra was released on parole Sunday. The uh, billionaire was freed from a police hospital where he had been serving a one-year jail sentence for corruption and abuse of power. So what's the latest here? Well, according to the BBC, Al Jazeera and the Thai newspaper The Nation, the 74-year-old Taksin arrived at his mansion in the capital Bangkok on Sunday. He was detained as soon as he returned to Thailand last August from 15 years in self-imposed exile. He did not spend a single night in jail after complaining of health problems. Taksin's original eight-year prison term was commuted to one year by uh, Thailand's king just days after he returned from exile. The handling of the case has led to criticism from many Thais who say the rich and powerful are often given privileged treatment. Thai authorities, on the other hand, said Taksin was eligible for parole due to his age and health issues. They did not say whether he was released under certain conditions such as monitoring or travel curbs. And those were our global headlines today. Hejin, thank you for bringing us those stories. Thank you.
Hello, this is Tiger JK of Drunken Tiger. You're now listening to Korea 24. <laughs> 너무나 큰 감격에 그런 기쁨에 그래 나는 너무나 행복해 North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has heightened tensions on the Korean Peninsula by reiterating his refusal to recognize the northern limit line, the de facto maritime border with South Korea. While overseeing an inspection test of a new surface-to-sea missile last week, he described the NLL as a ghost line and vowed to defend its own recognized border south of the NLL. He vowed to boost the military preparedness in the border waters north of the islands of Yampyang and Pengyang. Mention of these Yellow Sea islands raises memories of deadly incidents that took place between the two Koreas in recent decades, and there are growing concerns there might be similar provocations this year, especially ahead of the general elections in South Korea in April. To talk more about the escalating tensions along the maritime border, we have joining us in the studio today, Stephen Borowick, staff writer for Nikkei Asia here in Seoul. He recently visited Yampyong Island to get a sense of the public mood there. Mr. Borowick, hello and thank you for coming in today. Thank you. First off, can you outline for our listeners the different stances that the two Koreans have regarding this maritime border? Well, the key takeaway is that they don't agree on where the border lies. Uh, The South Korean side recognizes something called the Northern Limit Line, which has its origins in the United Nations uh, division of the Korean Peninsula in the early 1950s. But uh, because North Korea was not a party to that, they have a different take. They, I believe their standard is that they see the maritime border as being 12 nautical miles off of their coastline. And so the... The key difference there is that both sides, the way that they see it, there are these, there's these five inhabited South Korean islands that are uh, in the Yellow Sea over there. And so both sides see those as falling within their own waters. And so over the years, there have been scenarios of one or both of the sides having military exercises or shooting drills or things like that. And then uh, there being some misinterpretations as one of them interprets the other as operating within their borders mm. and that sparking a kind of clash. And, we, you know, we saw something like that happen, uh, I guess it was just a few weeks ago when uh, there was a shelter order issued on Yampyong Island after the South Korean side was having some kind of military exercises and then there was a fire exchange between the two sides. And so... That was just one kind of example of how things can change really quickly in that part of the country. Right, because these waters are disputed, this region has been known for various 
deadly flashpoints between the two Koreas over the years, particularly uh, near Yangpyeong Island. Uh, there was a clash between the two navies in 1999, another naval skirmish in 2002, a naval clash in 2009 off uh, Daecheon Island. Uh, 2010 was, of course, the most significant year with two incidents, the sinking of the Cheonan warship, which killed uh, 46 Korean sailors, South Korean sailors, and uh, then North Korea's bombardment of Yampyeong Island directly killing two South Korean civilians and two soldiers. Dozens more were injured. Uh, and there have been countless other minor provocations and testing of artillery equipment and so forth by North Korea in recent years, including, as you said, uh, just last month, which led to the residents of Yampyeong Island to be uh, evacuated or for them to take shelter. It's amid this backdrop um, that you recently visited Yampyeong Island, right? For our listeners, can you... Give us details about the island first itself. How big is it? How many residents live there? What sort of place is it? It's th- it's not a huge island, and it's uh, it feels even smaller than it is because almost all of the residents are concentrated in this one uh, kind of small residential and commercial area near the port. The island's uh, main industry, if you can call it an industry, is is fishing. Uh, there's those are some crab rich waters off of the coast of Yampyeong. So. When you arrive there, there's a, a ferry terminal that's a kind of it's kind of connected to the the larger the main part of the island by a bridge, and you get off that there and you come into the island and there's this sort of one long commercial area that runs along the coast and then the whole sort of northern part of the island is a lot of it is a military base. And then some of it is just kind of a rural, scenic, sort of forested and mountainous area where you, if you drive up, there's a couple of uh, monuments to the uh, the, you know, the clashes that have taken place in the waters off there that you that you refer to. And on a clear day, North Korea. So when I was there a couple of weeks ago, it was it was clear enough that just with the naked eye looking off of the northern coast of the island, you could see North Korean territory. Uh, there's a the the local government says there's about two thousand people who live there. Uh, it just so happened that when I was there this most recent time, it was my third time there. Uh, a lot of the people who reside there permanently were were not there because it was the the off season in crab fishing. Apparently, during January and February, uh, the crab fishermen don't work during mm. those months, and so they use that time to. A lot of them, they're, they're children, and they have and f- other family members live on on the mainland in Incheon. So they take that time to uh, get off of the island and go spend time with family. I see. Yeah, but uh, <clears throat> I, the reaction that I got from the people that I spoke to there was a, a little bit different than I was expecting. I mean, these are this type of article about tensions in Korea where a reporter goes and spends time in a border community to get a sense of how the people there feel about, you know, the risk and, and the level of danger. Generally, when I've done those over the years, the people tend to kind of shrug off any risk and they, they kind of say, yeah, well, you know, we've, we've been dealing with this for, you know, decades. It doesn't bother us. You know, right. North Korea says a lot of stuff, but... We don't believe that they would carry out any kind of sustained assault on this place that we live in. But on this trip, I did talk to a few people who felt like the risk really was higher than it was in mm. previous years. And they, they did really feel like the, the game had changed. And what they pointed to in explaining that was just 
the consistent pace at which North Korea has continued to develop new and more powerful weapons. You know, the, I, I spoke to this one uh, elderly gentleman in particular, and he just said to me, like, look, if you look at the news, every couple of weeks, North Korea has some kind of new thing that they've developed, whether it's a, a reconnaissance satellite or it's an underwater drone system or it's some uh, more powerful ballistic missile. And he said, like, he said, you know, you have to ask yourself why they're doing this. Like, why mm. are they creating all of these weapons? Presumably, they're not creating them just because they want to keep them in a warehouse somewhere. Like, they're, they are creating this with some kind of purpose in mind. And he made it sound like when they've when people in his community have communicated with the government in the past, the government has tried to reassure them and tried to say, like, you know, you're, you're safe living there. Don't worry. And he felt like he, he told me he did not feel safe, whereas he had in the past. He said he was really stressed out and, and really concerned about the, the near-term future of the island he lives on. That is interesting because, as you said, these residents here, they would be used to these sorts of uh, threats and rhetoric from a North Korea, you would think. But I guess uh, the speed and variety of weapons uh, that are perhaps being developed by North Korea and the reports of them anyway, uh, that's what's concerning them. And I'm guessing they're not getting much reassurance, you said, from the, the government either. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess it's limited in what the government can do. I mean, the government, the, the South Korean government, I think what they can say is what the administration has been saying is that they haven't, you know, the South Korean, South Korea has a very big military too. And the administration has been saying that if there's any kind of provocation that the South will respond. You know, you, I did get that, you know, typical shrugging off response too. I, I, I ate lunch at one restaurant and this elderly woman who, who owned the place just kind of said like, yeah, if, if that kind of thing bothers you, then you can't live here. You know, she said to me, she said to me, while you're here and while you're walking around talking to people, you won't meet anybody who's too worried about this because anybody who was really worried would have left. He's like the people who have decided to remain here. We have our own reasons for wanting to be here and we don't perceive of the risk as being too, too significant. Uh, so I, I guess the people who decide to live there, there's something else about the place that, that makes them want to remain mm. there. It's, it's, it's a sense of home. It's a sense of, of belonging. Uh, it is a kind of, in a, in a counterintuitive way, it is a kind of peaceful place compared to the South Korean mainland. It's a lot quieter. <laughs> right. There's a lot less traffic. There's a lot less, uh, pollution. So, but yeah, just as, as a kind of, you know, for the journalistic purpose of like using this place as a, as a bellwether of the the geopolitical situation, I did come away with I did come away feeling like the people there do perceive a a new and more serious kind of danger afoot. Right, I guess it would have been background noise. It's always been background noise. The threats from North Korea, but perhaps it is getting a bit louder and a bit more uh, hard to ignore as well. And not only did you visit the island, but you've been speaking to experts and you've, of course, followed developments on the peninsula for several years now. Taking all that into account, how real do you think the threat is uh, that North Korea could perhaps carry out another localized provocation near one of the five islands? Uh, located close to the border, like we've seen in the past before, uh, most notably 2010, uh, especially because we do have these elections coming up here in South Korea and also, of course, the US presidential elections uh, later down the line as well. How dangerous do you think the situation could get? Well, the international conversation on this topic really, as, as I'm sure you're aware, hit another level of uh, concern when a couple of experts published this uh, essay on a website called 38 North uh, a month or so ago, 
And they argued that Kim Jong-un had made a strategic decision to go to war. Uh, I'm not quite that right uh, concerned about things. I, I, I still keep going back to the the old line about how I, I don't think that North Korea is determined to launch any kind of conventional war because they, you know, South Korea and the U.S. still have a larger and more powerful military. And I think the leadership in Pyongyang, their main objective is still to stay in power. And so they're not going to do anything that would jeopardize that. Uh, we should stress that 38 North, it is a website, it is a, a part of a think tank, uh, uh, offshoot of a think tank, I believe, that analyzes uh, North Korea-related uh, news and North Korea uh, threats. So these are respected yeah, yeah. Uh, experts in their field. Yeah, these, these are, and I think that's what about this essay got a lot of attention, is because it came from a, a sober and credible source. This mm. was not, you know, uh, some fringe blog or anything like that. These, right. are, these are people who really know what they're talking about. Mm. But at the same time, I, I do think they kind of overstated the threat. Uh, what I think it comes down to is uh, in the escalating tensions of, of recent months, both North and South Korea have walked away from this agreement whereby they had had a, had a no-fly zone around their border, which is uh, agreed to under the previous administration. And the idea of that was that they would draw down the military presence in the border area, and that would the, the hope was that that would make a kind of unintentional clash less likely. That it would that would ward off a scenario where one side is is engaging in some kind of routine military maneuver, and the other side misinterprets it as something that's uh, aggressive or menacing, and then that sparks off an accident, accidental clash. Mm. With that agreement gone, we could see – with that agreement gone and with the, the general uh, tenor of relations you know, more tense than normal, we could see uh, – I think the way that you phrased the question was would North Korea carry out a localized provocation. I don't know if they would do that deliberately. I don't know if they would – you know, they would uh, – carry out some kind of military action that is intended to be provocative, mm. but they could do something that the South would interpret as pro provocative or, uh, you know, the other way around. They could interpret, they could uh, see something that the South Korean military is doing and respond in a way that escalates uh, conflict. And so we have to hope we don't see that. I, d I don't know how much... Uh, North Korea will do in the lead up to the the April elections. Uh, I think, I think some politicians have have flagged that as a possibility. Um, I've always been skeptical as to how much North Korea Korea really has to gain by drawing up tensions ahead of elections in either South Korea or the U.S. Because I just don't think that that's uh, why people vote. I don't think many South Korean people vote in a in a general election based on. Uh, the North Korea policy of the incumbent or the opposition parties, but uh, in previous polls, it's been further, quite far down the list yeah. of uh, priorities when for voters. Yeah, but uh, I mean, at the same time, the the leadership in Pyongyang, Pyongyang might have that in mind, and they might just see that as uh, they might see the elections in either South Korea or the U.S. as just a way to get people talking, a way to get themselves uh, in the headlines. So we'll we'll see. How do you think South Korea and the U.S. will respond uh, to these rising tensions, these threats at the moment? 
I think they'll probably continue to respond the way that they have, which is by kind of two major steps. The first is by condemning them. The first is by saying, you know, this this is wrong. South uh, North Korea should abide by international laws, international principles such as UN Security Council resolutions, and they should not do things like test ballistic missiles or uh, military reconnaissance technology and all the rest. And then they will say, and if North Korea does any kind of well, the provocation, you know, we will respond strongly. Uh, they might not specify exactly what they would do to respond because I think the two sides are are mindful that they don't want to come off as too aggressive. They don't want to come across as uh, antagonizing Pyongyang any more than they feel they really have to. And just another thing I think it's worth pointing out for context is if you look at North Korean state media, what they tend to say is that they will deploy all of their military strength if they are attacked or if they are provoked. You know, North Korea tends to not see themselves as the aggressor. They tend to to describe themselves as protecting their own territorial integrity, protecting Mm. their own interests and all the rest. I don't think generally what they, they, not what they do is threaten to launch some kind of war of aggression or anything like that. So uh, if I had to bet, I would say that this period of tensions will probably drag on like other ones have in the past, and hopefully we'll all remain safe. Sure, hopefully it won't spill over into uh, some sort of uh, deadly incident, uh, as you said. C- certainly, though, still, it's a definitely a time of high tension for the peninsula at the moment, especially for the residents of uh, Yangpyeong and other islands near the NLL. Mr. Borowick, we'll leave it there. Thank you for telling us about your visit to Yanpyeong and providing us, uh, uh, providing us with a picture of what's going on. Uh, we've been speaking to Stephen Borowick from Nikkei Asia. Thank you once again for your time. Thank you. Did you enjoy this segment? You can discover more segments like this throughout the week on Korea24. On Monday, we bring you news from the world of sport around the peninsula. Are you a fan of K-pop? Then be sure to join us on Tuesday to get the latest in the entertainment and K-pop world. For all the bookworms out there, tune in on Wednesday for Korea Book Club, where our literary critic helps us unpack works by Korean authors or written on Korea. Join us on an adventure every Thursday as we take a look at Korea's hidden gems with Explore Korea. And on Friday, listen to what our film critics have to say about the latest movie releases from both home and abroad. We have all that you need, all in one place, on Korea24. Next up, it's Monday Sports Roundup, our weekly look at the latest sporting headlines in Korea. And providing us with the updates and insights, we have joining us on the line sports reporter Yu Ji-ho from the Yanap News Agency. Ji-ho, hello. It's great to have you with us again. Yeah, it's great to be here. We begin with the biggest sports news that made headlines last week. The head coach of the South Korean men's national football team, Jurgen Klinsmann, was dismissed last Friday. It came after disappointing performances at the AFC Asian Cup, in particular the semi-final loss to Jordan. 
It also came after revelations of a brawl among some of the players a day before that game that led to Captain Son Heung-min's finger to be dislocated. So, Jiho, can you first recap for us uh, Klinsman's firing? Yeah, so the dismissal came last Friday. Uh, Korea Football Association President Chung Mong-gyu made the announcement himself. And also Klinsman uh, posted, I guess, a thank you message to fans of, and players of the Korean national team on the social media actually minutes before the announcement came. So he had been told beforehand that he was going to be fired. So this marks, I guess, a disappointing ending to a tenure that barely lasted one year. He was actually appointed toward the end of February last year. And I think a lot of people would say this was a lost one year, lost period of 12 months for Korean football with no progress made. And some might even say Korean football might have regressed over the last 12 months. Um, you know, you talked about the players' scuffle the night before the Jordan match at the Asian Cup. You know, I think it actually overshadows some of the bigger issues at hand. Uh, you know, and it's going to be a, a tough Difficult job for the new coach to come in and try to clean up the mess and try to, uh, you know, bring a lot of these players on the back on the same page. Um, you know, I guess it's, you know, entertaining in, in some respects for some fans to get into, you know, who did what uh, in, in what situation. You know, whether Igang into a punch at Son Min or whether the punch connected with the guy, you know, it, is all, it all sounds interesting or, I guess, entertaining for, uh, you know, observers outside the locker room but uh, again i think there are bigger problems at hand for the korean national team football mm. uh, and policeman you know, like to highlight the fact that his team went on a 13 match undefeated run before the loss to jordan but you know there was a lot of empty calories there too uh korea didn't really have a convincing victory over a good team uh during the span and you know for the entire asian cup they had one victory in 90 minutes of regulation and there was a 3-1 win over bahrain to start the group stage and they did not win another match in 90 minutes. So, you know, that says a lot about the state of the team, despite the fact that they had so much talent on the squad. So, you know, whoever comes in, uh, you know, it could be on a temporary basis just to get uh, get past a couple of World Cup qualifying matches coming coming up in March. And then the KFA might hire somebody different on a full-time basis uh, after, the war, after the fact. So uh, we'll, we'll see what happens with the new coach, but there's – there's going to be some more serious work cut out for the, for the new boss for the national team. Right. Are there any leading names at the moment? And where, as you said, does the team go from here? There have been even calls for Igang In, the PSG star who allegedly sparked the incident, to be dropped mm-hmm. from the national team. Uh, we're seeing perhaps some sponsors are uh, debating over whether to yep. drop him as well. Could we see any disciplinary action for Igang In? Uh, and can the team put this all behind them at some point? Yeah, so President Chung Mong-gyu was specific, specifically asked about potential disciplinary measures for players involved in this incident. And he said, because these players are not playing in Korea, they're club football, uh, pretty much the only way the national team can punish them is by not picking them for the national team matches. So again, uh, they will play Thailand home and away in the World Cup qualifiers. Uh, I'd be surprised if whoever new coaches actually selects Igang in for that for that occasion. Um, you know, it could be a, it could be seen as some sort of a punishment, or it could be seen as maybe protecting the player because you know he's been kind of uh, subject to witch hunting, if you will, mm. in, in social media or, or cyberspace, if you will. Um, so, you know, that that might be one way of, I guess, uh, you know, keeping out of this whole mess. 
but uh, as far as the discipline, I don't, I don't think they have any way of uh, suspending uh, Lee Gang-in per se. Well, it's been a rather dark chapter for Korean football, but hopefully somehow it can lead to a brighter future ahead. We'll see who the KFA picks to fill the hot seat in the days to come. Let's turn to some more positive news now. History was made by South Korean swimmers in Doha this month. South Korea enjoyed its most successful swimming world championships with five medals in total and plenty of records broken as well. Jiho, can you walk us through this uh, outstanding performance by Korea from the pool? Yeah, so Korea grabbed five medals at the competition, the World Aquatics Championships. Uh, that's the most ever by Korea at a single world championship. Uh, the diver Kim Soo-ji won bronze medal in the women's three-meter springboard and teamed up with Lee Jae-kyung for bronze medal in mixed three-meter synchronized diving event. And then in the swimming portion, uh, Kim Woo-min got the ball ro- uh, rolling with the men's 400-meter freestyle gold medal, and then Hwang Seon-woo followed it up with the 200-meter freestyle gold medal. And these two also helped Korea to silver medal in the uh, 4 by 200 meter freestyle relay. And that's Korea's very first relay medal at the World Championships. They finished only one-tenth of a second behind China. So Hwang Seon-woo made a lot of history himself. He became the first Korean swimmer to win a medal at three straight World Championships. First to win a 200 meter freestyle gold medal and also became the most decorated Korean swimmer with four medals, breaking a tie with Park Tae-hwan. So some top names skipped the Doha event this time because they wanted to focus on the Olympics coming up in Paris. But the Korean swimmers, they saw these world championships as part of their preparation for the Olympics. And Huang said winning medals will be a good stepping stone for the Olympics and uh, obviously a lot of a confidence boost for these young swimmers to be winning medals uh, you know, in the build-up to the Olympics. Okay, so these achievements then perhaps come with a caveat that some top names didn't take part. Still, it was very impressive still for Korea. How much is that down to your individual talent versus how much the sport has been developing in Korea? I think a little bit of both. Um, and uh, as far as the swimming talent goes, I think the Korean Swimming Federation deserves some credit for you know, giving them an opportunity to develop. You know, they send these guys to Australia for a pretty hardcore four-week training camp just before the World Championships. And they've done it a few times with this group, uh, Hwang Seon-woo and Kim Woo-min. Uh, they did it before the uh, World Championships last year also. Uh, so, you know, using the connection that they have in Australia, which is one of the biggest swimming countries, uh, give them really good coaching, uh, kind of a crash course on, on some of the uh, technical technical aspects of their uh, of their uh, careers, uh, I think it's really helped them. And, uh, you know, obviously you got to have some talent to begin with on, as foundation, but, uh, uh, it's, you know, it's been a really good combination of a lot of uh, different things. You know, they, have to, they have the talent to begin with, mm. and, uh, the, you know, people running the show have given them an opportunity to, to you know, work on those talent. Well, it's been impressive all around, it seems. Big news because swimming was uh, not a sport that Korea had traditionally excelled at. But moving on, a sport where we do expect gold medals is short track speed skating. And the latest generation of stars are continuing that legacy. Korean skaters Kim Gil... Kim Gilly and Park Ji-won were crowned the women's and men's overall World Cup champions for the season. The sixth and final World Cup of the season took place in Poland over the weekend and they hung on to capture the Crystal Globe trophies. So, Ji-ho, can you tell us more? 
Yeah, so this is the first Crystal Globe for Kim Gi Lee and second straight for Park Ji Won. The ISC, or the International Skating Union, began awarding these trophies last season. Uh, so this time, Kim Gi Lee finishing with uh, 1,211 points, 31 ahead of uh, Kristen Santos Griswold of the U.S., and Park Ji Won defeating Stephen Dubois, Dubois of Canada by, by 19 points at 1,071. So each individual victory is worth 100 points. Uh, second place, 80 points, and so forth. So this is really a testament to the, the consistency throughout the season for these skaters, and especially on uh, Kim Gilly's part, because she went off the really strong start, uh, maintained her pace, winning seven gold medals across the six World Cup stops to lead all female skaters. Uh, Park Ji-won was a little bit slower out of the gate, but had a really good showing at the fourth World Cup in Seoul in December uh, with a gold and a silver medal, and then added two more gold medals in, at the next stop, in Germany. So at the final World Cup in Poland, uh, Kim won silver medal in the 1,000 meters. And uh, the fact that she actually advanced to the final at all sealed the World Cup title for her. Uh, and, and it was actually the first time all season that she actually failed to win a gold medal at a World Cup stop. For Park Ji won, uh, he won the 1,000 uh, meter title. So Dubois gold and a silver in two 500 meter finals were not enough for the Canadian. So the next big event for short track is going to be the World Championships in the Netherlands in, in March. Meanwhile, in long track speed skating, Korean sprinter Kim Min Sun captured her first Korea World Championship medal with a silver in the women's 500 metres in Canada over the weekend. She became the first Korean skater in seven years to reach the World Championship podium in that event. So, another impressive performance from Kim after a strong season then, Ji Yeah, it was a very good showing for Kim. Uh, she clocked at 37.19 seconds. For the silver medal at the World Speed Skating Single Distances Championships out in Calgary, uh, Femke Kok of the Netherlands finished first in 36.83 seconds. So Kim Min-sun had placed fourth at last year's World Championships after dominating the World Cup Series, uh, winning uh, five out of six gold medals out there. This year, uh, Kim Min-sun finished second overall in the World Cup points, uh, but added her first World Championship medal uh, to cap off her season. Could have been a really, I guess, you know, gold medal or even even closer uh, to the gold, if not the gold outright, because uh, Kim Min-sun had a bit of a slight slip-up on the final corner when she appeared to lose a little bit of a balance momentarily, uh, ended up touching the track with her left fingertips. Uh, she said it was a type of mistake that she doesn't normally make. Uh, she said she might have rushed herself a little bit, a little more than usual. So when 10.40 seconds in the opening 100-meter straight, and that has not been her strength at all. So this is actually was a very good time for her. Uh, I guess it was a little bit of frustrating on her part uh, to kind of have the slip up in the final corner. Yeah, it's frustrating, but still, it's uh, great to see a Korean athlete back on the podium. Let's next go back to football because three Korean clubs are competing in the knockout stages of the AFC Champions League. Two of them are unfortunately facing each other. That's Chumbuk Hyundai Motors and Pohang Steelers. The return leg is this week. Can you preview this week's uh, matchups for us? Yeah, so Chumbuk versus Pohang. The return leg is 7 p.m. Tuesday. Last week, Chumbuk won the first leg 2-0 at home. So they're in the driver's seat to advance to the quarterfinals as they travel to Pohang uh, for the next leg. So no way goals rule this time uh, in the AFC. And Pohang didn't even score in, score in their away match last week. So Pohang actually must defeat Chumbuk by three goals to advance. That's a tall order there. And they lost a whole bunch of players. Also went through a coaching change this winter. 
but in the meantime, Chumbuk bolstered the squad with uh, some pretty solid players after a disappointing 2023 season. And uh, last year, if you recall, in the FA Cup final, it was Pohang over Chumbuk for their lone trophy of the campaign. And Chumbuk setting out to win multiple trophies this time with some new faces. The winner of this match will face the winner of uh, Ulsan and Benfrey Kofu in the other uh, round of 16 series. Ulsan, they're, the, of course, the two-time K-League 1 champions. They took the first leg 3-0 last week. They're going to be playing in Tokyo at 6 p.m. Wednesday. So these are the first official matches in 2024 for the three K-League clubs. Their domestic season will kick off on March 1st. And finally, the Korean city of Busan is hosting the World Championships in table tennis. And the men's and women's teams for the host country have both clinched their spots in the round of 16. Can you give us the latest from Busan? Sure. Well, the men's team defeated India 3 to nothing to complete the group stage with a perfect 4-0 record earlier today. Uh, Chang Wojin, Im Jong-un and Yi Sang-soo each winning their singles matches. So there are eight groups of five. Uh, the group winners are advancing directly to the round of 16. The next two teams ending up in the playoffs for a spot in the round of 16 as well. The Korean women's team qualified for the round of 16 on Sunday after beating Puerto Rico for their third straight victory. Uh, they're going to close out the group stage against Cuba later Monday. The team of uh, Chun Ji-hee, Shin Yoo-bin and uh, Yi Xion competed uh, for, the, for the Korean women's team. Uh, Shin Yoo-bin dropped her singles match against Adriana Diaz. But Chun Ji-hee went out and actually defeated Diaz in the fourth singles match. So the World Championships, they actually alternate between the individual and team events. In even-numbered years, it's a team competition. So each match is made up of up to five singles in the best-of-five format. Only three players out of the five each for each team can play. So if you go to distance, two players actually will play twice uh, for each country. Well, that's all for our Sports Roundup this week. Jiho, thank you for those updates, and we'll talk to you again soon. OK, thanks for having me. And we wrap up our show here for today. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow, so we hope you can join us again then. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. KBS World Radio.